Amen. Well, good morning. I really hope uh, you're with us. I hope everything's going okay for you. I hope you're comfortable. Um, no, I'm sure you're comfortable. You're sitting at home. I, I hope you're engaged. Uh, I hope that you're treating this as real. It's got all the components. Uh, so let's roll. Let's go. Let's do this like we normally would. If you have a copy of the scriptures, open them up to Hebrews chapter 10 towards the end of the Bible. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have the words for you on the screen. And we want to help you to stay up with what we're doing. As David said, we're talking about what the Bible says, not what we think. So we want you to be able to keep up with how this is coming from the scriptures. And like we said last week, we say the same thing every week at Hope Church. And we say it now. Pandemic and earthquake aside, we say, open your Bibles. Don't panic. Hebrews chapter 10, if you scan down to verses 24 and 25, it says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we were asked by our government officials and all the medical professionals to stay away from each other, to limit our groups to social distancing, to go from no more than 100, no more than 50, no more than 10 people, and the ramifications of that for churches, knowing that we would not be able to meet together physically as Hope Church, the first verses that ran through my mind are the ones that we just talked about here from Hebrews. How are we supposed to be faithful to God's command not to give up meeting together if we can't meet together? If the church can't gather, if it's not wise for the church to gather? I started to feel the anxiety of somebody who helps to lead an organization because my next thought was, well, if we can or can't meet together, okay, now if we can't meet together, how is Hope Church going to survive? I thought of hope as an organization in that moment. I thought immediately about the kinds of things that keep momentum within an organization. All the different sharing and posting and excitement and messages. And I thought as a church, maybe as an organization, maybe like a, a rowboat. And we're moving forward because we're pulling those oars. And every Sunday is one more oar pull. And all of a sudden you take away Sunday. And the boat keeps moving for a little bit, and then that momentum dies. How do you keep it going? Now, it's exactly like a preacher to imagine that the sermon is the only thing keeping a church going. I hope that you're uh, having some amount of, of, of laughter at my stupidity and thinking that the only thing that's going to keep the church going is the active, like, gathering together on a Sunday morning. Of course it's more than that. Of course it's bigger than that. But of course you feel the fear. I hope that you understand, if you're somebody who has a stake in the life of Hope Church, I hope you feel a little bit of that fear about what happens next for us. So if, as an organization, as a church, we feel like we're standing on a precipice, we're kind of looking out over into danger. These verses command us, we can't because of the government, how do we keep things moving? We feel anxiety. If you don't care about Hope Church, maybe you're somebody who's just joining us for the first time through this miraculous means of YouTube Live, and thank you so much for joining us, and you don't necessarily not like Hope Church. It's just not your church or you're not your place. 
yet you even, if you're in Utah especially, feel this precipice personally. We've gone through incredible, weird stuff, stuff that doesn't happen that often. You feel like you're on a hike, you're looking over this precipice, and all of a sudden, one of the rocks shift under your feet. And again, if you're in Utah, that happened literally this week, as all of a sudden, the stability of your own home shook. No longer were the things that were supposed to be stable, stable. And that had been happening already for weeks. What's more stable than March Madness? You look forward to it annually. I know I did. And maybe this says something about my maturity level. But when that finally hit, that that was canceled, oh man, that's when I got serious about this COVID stuff. No longer do we have March Madness. Then you can't even have the NBA. Then you can't even have social interaction. Now, do you feel the rock starting to move? This is where it went from a moderate inconvenience to maybe an overreaction to, whoa, this is bigger than I realize. And what if the things that I do need to be stable aren't so stable any longer? Okay, I can go without social interaction for a little while, I guess. Some of us were maybe excited about that, the introverts among us. The extroverts maybe a little bit more in intensely upset. But then things like restaurants started to close, and the groceries started to empty. And you start to wonder, what if even the supply chain that feeds my children gets disrupted? Instability. And then, of course, the earthquake that took place this week. Utah, as a state, literally shakes and then goes through these aftershocks for the whole day. Started texting, of course, different people, seeing how they were doing. One little guy that used to live in our downstairs basement, a guy named Noah Say, him and his wife. I was texting with them, like, hey, are you guys okay? And he texted back, yeah, we're good. We're just a little shaken. So I don't know if a joke like that means he's okay or not, but it was a good <laughs> moment of realizing, like, okay, they're fine. They're fine. I personally was running around in a towel. I was about to hop in the shower, not to put any pictures in your mind, but I was running around in a towel trying to collect my family as my wife was looking out the window. <laughs> I don't know if you know a lot about earthquake safety. Uh, the first thing you do is not look out the window. Uh, there's nothing to see out the window in an earthquake, but also glass, you know. We were laughing that the only injuries in the whole thing would be like a news report saying, thankfully there was no bodily harm, uh, no one was injured in this earthquake. Except for one Midvale woman who ch chose to look out a window during an earthquake. <laughs> we just, we weren't prepared for it. Now, much more prepared. I, I don't fault her for that. It's funny to think about, but I don't fault her for that. We just didn't know. But then, you put both of those together. You realize that there's this COVID thing going on and there's an earthquake. And so you think about verses that run through your head. The next verses that run through personally and through my head, I'm thinking about Matthew 24. We've got earthquakes and pestilence. It says in Matthew 24, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes, in various places. Are you reading that with me? It starts to talk about stuff that we are kind of starting to feel. 
You read that and you kind of maybe have echoes of that verse in your head and then this is going on, so you look it up. You do like I do, just to let you know, I don't have the Bible memorized, but certain, certain phrases will come up in my head and I'll Google those half phrases and then Google will tell me what verses I'm thinking about and then I click on it and then, oh yeah, okay, Matthew 24, and you read it and you go, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, what, what if this is happening? And then you, you settle down a little bit. You realize that historically this is something that we've gone through as humanity over and over and over again. There have been lots of other earthquakes and, of course, much bigger earthquakes. There's been lots of other wasting diseases and plagues. What remains to be seen about this one, where it will rank among those. But it should make you think. And as you try to put all of this together, if you can kind of walk with me as I'm trying to put all this together in my head, you go back to those verses in Hebrews, which have the commands that they have. They don't change. The, the writer of Hebrews knew about Matthew. He knew about these last things. He knew there would be days when the, the church was having these kinds of obstacles, and yet it still says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's helpful that they capitalize the letter D in day, because it's talking about the day. Not as you see a day drawing near, not as you see Wednesday drawing near, but as you see the day drawing near. And in biblical parlance, that's talking about the last day. The day of Jesus' returning, the day when all of this gets turned over. I don't know your thoughts on how that's all going to happen or what that's going to look like. I mean, the scriptures tell us a lot of stuff. But whenever it is, it is coming. It's certainly coming for you. Death comes for us all. It's certainly coming for the people you know. It's certainly coming for the culture we live in. And the Bible says it's definitely coming for all things. That there's going to be this end moment and then... Some kind of something, which the Bible talks about as meeting with God. But there is an end, and something, some kind of end is coming for you and for me. It's not wise for us to pretend that the inevitable is not coming. It's foolish for us. We can make fun of the ostrich sticking its head in the sand, but it's foolish for us if we do the same thing. No, we've got to prepare. We've got to understand that whenever this is coming, it is coming at the pace of 24 hours a day. It is inevitable, and it must be prepared for. And again, we talked about this last week. We're not going to be ones who are fearful because perfect love casts out fear. We go to the Father. We understand His preparations for these things. We put the gospel in our hearts, and we're not going to fear that way. But understand that as that fear comes, as that day draws near, there's this idea that you want to get into the castle of your home and pull up the drawbridge on that castle. Use social distancing as an excuse to cut yourself and your resources off from all the other people around you. And yet, Hebrews 10. We are still commanded to consider to consider how we can stir one another up 
in love, that you're supposed to put in your head this other person that you're connected with through Hope Church, and you're supposed to think about what do they need? What is it like right now to be them? How can I help them because I love them? And I don't want to just take care of their needs. I want to actually get down into their heart and help them to feel the love, to stir up the love that we have together in Christ. This is saying that in the moment when you've got two crackers and that's it, and they've got no crackers, you have to share your crackers. How do you do that? How do we get ready to do that? We have a biblical command in Hebrews 10, but we also have a biblical example in Acts chapter 4. So, early church, Acts is telling the story of the church after Jesus. He does his ministry, he dies on the cross, he, he's buried, and three days later he rises from the grave, and then he ascends into heaven. And as he ascends into heaven, he talks about how the Holy Spirit is going to come down upon his disciples, upon his followers, and fill them up with the Holy Spirit. And they're going to go, and they're going to proclaim his gospel. Gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. They're going to go and they're going to proclaim his gospel. And we see in Acts the early story of the church. In Acts chapter 4, we see the way that that church looked. It's unbelievable. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Not socialism, not communism, but a chosen, a desired giving of the things that were theirs. It says in verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all, and there was not a needy person among them. What? There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, there's no commands in that verse. It's just telling you a story. And here's what happened in the early church. But can you connect this example with the command we have in Hebrews to love each other? To stir one another up to good works? Do you see what happens when they do that? <laughs> Nobody's in need. Why? Because they each chose to give what they had to this big collective fund administered by the apostles so that everyone could take what they needed. Everybody was fine. Next couple verses talk about a guy named Barnabas who's a big kind of player in the book of Acts who goes and he sells some property and he brings that money to the apostles. He just lays it at their feet. Whatever you guys want to do. That means... That in this early church, this persecuted minority, small group of people that were under-resourced, marginal, yet each of these people is giving what they have in order to take care of the other people in that community. Is that what we're willing to do? If it comes down to it, are you willing to embrace that the example we have in Scripture is of a group of fanatics that were selling property in order to care for one another's physical needs? Is that what we are ready to do? 
Can you understand? I, I think many of you are starting to understand, if you're following the news cycle, that the economic effects of all this are going to be with us long after the victims are laid to rest and the vaccine is mass-produced. That means that the needs that we have are going to continue even after some of the physical needs of the COVID stuff go away and your brothers and your sisters are going to start to lose jobs and then start to lose houses. What will we do then? Think of it from my perspective. How, how can I convince you <laughs> to do like Barnabas who sold property? in order to care for other people. If you're sitting here, how would you convince people to do that? How can I convince my wife that we need to do that? Really, take a second and think about it. How are you going to sit across the dinner table and say, okay, listen, I think this is what we got to do. You don't lead by just fiat. You have to lead. How do you, how do you convince? How do you bring her along? How do I convince myself to practice what I preach? I love my car. Well, I got to sell it? I want to sell it. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. How do I convince myself to practice what I preach? Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, most people are either so personally selfish or so baked in our modern culture, which is unapologetically individualistic and materialistic. And from one side or the other, you are absolutely unquestioned in your belief that what is yours is yours and others don't have a right to it. And of course, they don't have a right to it. But that's what this is talking about. This is talking about actually caring for others so much that you would do that. And so you think about trying to make your argument to yourself, to your spouse, to your culture, and me trying to make this argument to you. How do I get down into your heart and make you actually want to do that? It feels like walking up into one of our canyons and start trying to dig out granite. That's what I think it would be like to try and convince you to start doing this. That I would need to take saws and sledgehammers and wedges and, and all the different kinds of picks and stuff that they use and start hammering little bits of your heart away. Start trying to crack from the outside into it with grinding, drilling, slow, monotonous messages about how the other people around you need you and that you have a duty to them and about how your duty as a citizen is to care for them and about how God is watching and about how he sees everything and about the legacy that you're going to leave for your children and about how you are standing in the community and that your standing means that you have to be willing to care for others. Anything that I could leverage to slowly move around the rock-like substance of your heart. Is that how the Bible works? Is that what we're commanded to do? We talk about gospel versus religion all the time at Hope Church. Is that what we're commanded to do? Is it my job to look at the commands that we have in Scripture, the examples that we get from Scripture, and to take them and just start a pounding on your heart in order to convince you to do what you're told to please an outside authority figure 
I don't think, <laughs> I don't think, in fact, I know that is not how Christianity works. It only seems that way if you take these examples and you take these commands out of their context and just start trying to batter people over the heads with them. Because every time you see stuff like this, you always have a background. The scripture is so concerned that you understand the background because the Bible is not trying to build simply philanthropists. God's not concerned primarily with your generosity. He's concerned primarily with your heart. There's something else that has to take place. So in Hebrews, we're back in Hebrews chapter 10. There's a backdrop to these verses about not stopping to gather together and stirring one another up to loving good works. And that background takes a second to read, but stay with me. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 15. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us... For, after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see what it says? There's a lot there, but did you see what it said? Now, there's a couple of pieces there. When I, when I read it in my uh, copy of the scriptures that are indented, they're in quotes and they're kind of indented. They're put off to the side because it is quoting. It's, the copy of the scripture is showing us that this, this verse is quoting from an Old Testament passage. It's from a specific passage in a place uh, called Jeremiah where it's talking about how God is going to write those laws on our hearts. Make those laws, his ideas, and his principles come not outside in, but inside out. Did you see it? If you, if you can really understand this, if you can start to really grasp this, it makes all the difference in the world because he is not trying to crack open your heart from the outside in but there's a covenant, there's a promise that he's going to take these things and he's going to put them so far down inside that they flow up and out. And how does he do that? Well, it says it there too. He's going to remember our lawless deeds no more through the incredible salvation that he gives us in Jesus. Not some underhanded way of convincing you. Not some mining, grinding, hammering, terribly slow and shame-inducing process. But inside out, like a sunrise. Think about that moment before, right as uh, the pre-dawn kind of slowly things get lighter and brighter. And all of a sudden as the sun starts to rise up, the valley warms up. Light comes down. We start to gain definition on all that was dark. We start to be able to see. This warmth starts to fill us up and get down into our bones. 
when Rachel and I first were going to move to Utah, I brought her, uh, she was very pregnant with our second child, and I brought her and we were uh, not sleeping super well anyway, so we just got up really early. I had this idea that we were going to go and sit up at This Is The Place Park before sunrise and watch the sunrise up over the valley. That was a terrible idea. That was not a good way to serve her as her husband. It was not romantic. It was not interesting, really, because in Utah, the, the mountains are so big to the east that the sunrise, which is beautiful if you're looking at the mountains, doesn't really do much if you're looking west. So it was ill-conceived from the beginning. But we were parked in this car, and we can't see anything. It's very, very dark. It's really early. The sun's not even close yet. And we're just sitting there and we're talking. And slowly, as the sun does start to come up, you gain a little bit of definition around you. And I remember I'm talking to Rachel, you know, we're by ourselves in this park. I'm not sure if it's legal or not for us to be sitting there, but nobody's asked any questions yet. You know, so I'm a little nervous, but we're talking. And all of a sudden, I stop and I grab everything and I get really anxious because there's a man right outside our window with a bat. Oh my gosh, freaked me out. And I sort of sat there for a couple of seconds, and then we turn on the headlights or the sun continues to come up, whatever happened, but it slowly gains more definition. And you realize, if you've ever been to This Is The Place Park, as soon as you walk in, there's a statue of Brigham holding a map with Joseph like pointing over his head. Yeah, that's all it was. I thought a man with a bat had come to like kick us out of the park, but it was just a statue. The light brought the clarity. As the sun comes up, the, the darkness, the disassembly, the difficulty in understanding, the coldness starts to fade. The warmth starts to spread. The meaning starts to grow from the inside out. That's what these verses are talking about. It's talking about a love that goes down into your heart. Laws that go all the way down into your heart and become part of your identity. Not because of your strong-willed obedience, but because of the love that puts them in there. What love are we talking about? We're talking about the kind of love that loves you so much that it gives to you with all the joy that you give gifts to your children on Christmas morning. And you can't wait, and you have this whole buildup, and somebody's filming, and you're watching as the kids finally open up these presents because you're so excited to give them because you love your kids so much that you're giving to your kids as this overflow of your incredible love for them. That's what God's talking about. He's giving to us out of his incredible love, the overflow of his incredible love towards us, something. He's giving us a salvation. And that love, it goes way past the outside of our heart, all the way down into the inside. And it puts something in there that grows out. And it's obedience that comes from a change internally because of a love externally, a change internally that goes from the inside out. You have to get this. You have to see this. We talked about how Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah when it's talking about these heart, these laws being written all the way down on our hearts. Jeremiah, if you don't know, was an Old Testament prophet who wrote and prophesied during incredibly unstable times for the Hebrews. So much so 
that if we look at what he was going through and we look through the, what the early church was going through in the book of Hebrews, the stuff that we're going through presently is kind of small potatoes. We would be a little embarrassed to say, well, but <laughs> restaurants are only drive through You know, like we wouldn't want to compare our suffering to theirs. And that should give us comfort because what comforted them in the greater suffering is definitely going to comfort us in the lesser. Jeremiah watched as wave after wave of the people of Israel were deported to Babylon. He watched as the, the place where God's presence existed in this Old Testament temple, built by the wealth of David and the wisdom of Solomon, where God's presence existed in the Holy of Holies, where that Ark of the Covenant sat. He watched as Babylon, this nation from the outside that did not know or fear God, broke that temple down. He watched as the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham were unmade, as the people no longer had a place, a land, even a nationhood. And he knew what Moses had said about how if they broke this covenant, if they lived against God's laws, God's laws that he would take the benefits of the covenant away from them. Do you know why Jeremiah was called a weeping prophet? Because he watched all this and he just wept. And what comfort did he have? His comfort was in knowing that God was going to take one day somehow these laws, these covenants, and he wasn't just going to try and set them on top of us and watch as they crush us. But instead, he was going to put those covenants, put those laws inside us somehow plant them like a seed down in us that would grow up naturally as any seed grows up. But how do you do that? Think for a second about what a church really is. A church is not an organization that requires momentum and social engineering like in my fear and my sin. I think it is. That's not what a church is. A church is a family. God is its head. Church is family. It's where we are adopted, not born, adopted into his family. And so the way that he's relating to us is like the way you would relate to your kids if you were a better parent. I can command obedience from my children with fear. I'm bigger than most people, much less most seven-year-old girls. Put me next to a seven-year-old girl. I'm a very impressive specimen. I can intimidate my children into obedience, and I'll do that when I'm not being very kind, when I just want something to happen and I let my voice get loud and deep and daddy voice, and all of a sudden people obey. But it's external obedience. It's not from the heart. They're obeying, but they're obeying the whole time thinking about, like, why is dad such a creep? Fear-based obedience. Or I can have my children obey because they know that I love them. They know that my commands come from a place that values them so greatly. I want my children to remember and be thankful for the things that Rachel and I do for them, not just because I want credit, but because I want to underline in their hearts all the way deep down, as far as their hearts go, that mommy and daddy love them. If they know that we love them all the way down, never question it, as stable as the earth under their feet, more stable than the earth under their feet, if 
they know that we love them, then they can obey. And then that obedience is an affirmation of love rather than a fear-based compliance to an authority. Do you see the difference? It's all the difference of night and day. It's why the people in Acts were joyful about their property selling. You have to understand the love that plants that law in your heart. It's a love that says in Hebrews 10, 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more. That's what he uses. That's the finger he uses to plant that seed down in your heart. It is a love that was proved on the cross. That's why Hebrews goes into all the kind of graphic stuff that it says in verses 19 and 20, how we have confidence to enter into the holy places. We can have confidence to walk into God's throne room and stand before him. Why? Look how graphic it is. It says in 19 and 20, we can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And there's a part of you that can take that and kind of shuffle it away because it talks about the blood of Jesus so many times in Scripture that you can sort of think like, okay, maybe this is poetic or whatever. Then he doubles down. He says it's a new and living way that's open for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. Through the parting of his flesh. You've got to let this sink in. You've got to let it be graphic. Because if it's graphic, then you're actually going to start to understand the levels wherein God loves you. How much does God love you? He loves you crucifixion much. He loves you death of a son much. Sorry for the grammar. He loves you as much as it's possible to love. He loves you so much that looking at you and knowing, knowing because he knows you and because he knows the hair, number of hairs on your head, he knows you so thoroughly that he looks at you and he knew exactly what you needed and the only way to make it possible. And he loved you so much that even that horrible cost, he was willing to pay. Not just willing, he did pay. Do you know that love? John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever <laughs> believes in him is not going to perish but have eternal life. That's, that's the promise. That's the love. Do you see it? You have to see it before you do anything else. Don't worry about all this other stuff until you see it. Do you see it? If you see it, it changes everything. It takes the seed of who he is and what he is going to make you, and it puts it all the way down in your heart. And then as naturally as an acorn becomes an oak, it will bear fruit. God who can look at you through Christ and say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This week, <clears throat> just for no other reason than love, David and Sonia Bowers had their kids, Evan and Ethan. They had them uh, ding-dong ditch our house. They came up with a, a gallon bag of oranges and popcorn and ring pops 
And they dropped it, rang the doorbell, giggled like crazy, and then ran off two doors down where mom and dad were in the car. Why? Because they love. <laughs> Did we need oranges? No. We actually had oranges. Do we need popcorn? No. I buy popcorn in, like, weird quantities. <laughs> then what, what, what was so exciting about that? <laughs> it was, he didn't bring just stuff. He felt love, and then he expressed love. And I did not just receive stuff. I received love. Love with skin on it. Love embodied. And it stuck with us. We haven't eaten the oranges. The kids drew, the Evan and Ethan drew little faces on the little clementines. And so my kids haven't eaten them. They just hold them like the little people. Because those things, they're, they're way more important than vitamin C. They're, they're the love that Evan and Ethan have for our kids. Do you get it? Do you start to see? That's the economy that we're buying and selling in here. We are embracing the love from God that's pouring out like a waterfall, and all we're doing is simply turning that overwhelming love that God's giving to us out towards others and watching as they light up, experience that love, get to know the Father love, and then pour out that same love. <laughs> Don't stop meeting together. Be stirred up to love and good works. But don't just do it to do it. Don't just do it from the outside in. Don't just do it to be seen doing it. Do it because the love of God has so thoroughly changed you that that love spills out to others. Do you believe? Has that love met you? If it has, man, let it change you. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that your love is so much more stable. Even the love that's echoed out through other people is so much more stable than our economy with COVID or than our houses with earthquakes. Your word is a rock that's never going to move. I just pray that our people, anybody that's listening to this now, people who know or don't know Hope Church, would just feel that love embrace that acceptance, be changed by that kind of care, and that the love that you give would work from the inside out, as only the gospel can, Lord, not religion, but work from the inside out to change us thoroughly in order to change your world. We love you, sir. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.